0: Hello, welcome to episode three of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. In our first two episodes, we gave an overview of the storied history of opening day in Cincinnati and discussed the notable firsts and special occasions that have occurred on the holiday in Cincinnati that signals the arrival of spring and the rebirth of our national pastime. Baseball. Today, we are going to explore the biggest myths about Opening Day, which involves the question of Cincinnati's alleged entitlement to always start the baseball season before anyone else. In this episode, we are privileged to have one of the treasures of our town, writer and political commentator Howard Wilkinson. After 30 years of covering local and state politics for the Cincinnati Enquirer. Howard joined WVXU Radio, and you can hear him regularly on WVXU. However, his passion is the Cincinnati Reds, and so we certainly have that in common. A native of Dayton, Ohio, Howard has covered every Ohio governor's race since 1974, as well as 13 presidential nominating conventions. Along with politics, Howard... Also reported on the 2001 Cincinnati race riots, the Lucasville prison riot in 1993, the Air Canada plane crash at the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport back in 1983, and the 1997 Ohio River flood. In 2012, the Society of Professional Journalists inducted Howard into the Cincinnati Journalism Hall of Fame. Quite an honor. I have read Howard's column since I was in high school, but I discovered his love for the Reds and opening day as I was researching for my book, Cincinnati's 150-year opening day history, The Hoopla Started with a Parade. That research revealed that Howard may be the greatest poet to ever describe our opening day traditions. Here are a few quotes that I discovered in the archives of the Cincinnati Enquirer. For example, in nineteen eighty eight, Howard wrote, quote, Opening Day is not modern. It may not be everything that it was in the time of our parents and grandparents, when the world seemed simpler and baseball had no rival for the fans' attention, but in form and substance, it has not changed all that much. It is still a holiday in Cincinnati, a once a year happening that is unique to this town and all of baseball. Twenty-three years later, He explained, in Cincinnati, the activity that brings us together is baseball, the sport that began as a village game and drew the community in as spectators. Those were great quotes, but the best of all of them was written by Howard in 2012. Quote, why does this opening day and the game it represents have such a hold on Cincinnati? Because it is an heirloom a thing passed from generation to generation to generation. It is a time-worn Bible, Grandma's Oaken China Closet, the sepia-toned, doguro-type photograph of a great-great-grandfather who fought with the Union Army at Shiloh. It is a gift from one generation to another, the gift of baseball, with all its pleasures and disappointments its heart-stopping moments, and even its occasional tedium. A gift from one generation to the next. A gift of memories to be shared by the old with the young. Unquote. But that's enough about me talking about (laughs) Howard. Let's hear from the man himself. Howard, welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you, Randy. Thanks for having me. Hey, Howard, we have a lot to cover Mm -hmm. about opening day today, so let's get the show on the road. Today's topic is the folklore surrounding opening day in Cincinnati, and allow me to give the listeners a little historical context. Speaking of politics, we've got the right man to talk about politics today. The folklore took center stage in 1986 when the Detroit Tigers were scheduled to open the American League season 35 minutes before the opener in Cincinnati. Kenneth Blackwell, the mayor of Cincinnati at the time, and the Reds' owner, Marge Schott, claimed that this was an outrageous violation of our right to start every baseball season. An ironic part of it was that Sparky Anderson, the former legendary manager of the Reds, was now the manager of Detroit, and so it was dubbed Sparky's Revenge. Blackwell also suggested, with his tongue firmly in his cheek, that the Greater Cincinnati International Airport should suspend all landing rates for planes from the Detroit area. So, Howard, uh, you covered that event. Mm-hmm. Can you give us uh, a brief history lesson about 1986 and that claim by Blackwell?
1: Well, it, it was Ken Blackwell, and then the others, other council members joined in the chorus and were making the same claims about, you know, well, we, need, we, we deserve to be first. We've always been first. And, uh, you know, it's, it was some kind of uh, unwritten law that we were to be the first to play every season. And, you know, I, I started—I had a politics column, of course, in the Enquirer. Mm-hmm. I was over at City Hall all the time, and I was listening to this, and I said, you know, I, when I was a kid, I believed this. But later, I, I started to learn about the history of the game, and I started to read, and I couldn't find anything— in the history of, of baseball, that actually were, were any authoritative source said right. to the Reds, you were first. You're going to be first because you were the first professional uh, baseball team. And there was a myth going around for a long time about uh, the first commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, from
0: Butler County, Ohio. He was from Butler County, Ohio. Oh yeah, I never knew that. That's
1: right, A little uh, little town uh, just south of Oxford. Okay, and uh, Millville, uh, Millville was the name of it. Anyway, that's where he was from, and he, you know, the the myth was that he had set this as some sort of reward to Cincinnati. Uh, baseball club for, you know, the, the game actually starting as a professional sport in Cincinnati, which is true. But we all know now that really that 1869 Red Stockings were the first incarnation, and then there was a second incarnation of the Reds, and then what exists today came about in 1876 with the formation of the National League. So that's there's actually been three different
0: organizations, red stockings to reds to, to today. So it wasn't all about 1869 red stockings. You know, that's, that's the myth I heard when yeah. I was a kid, because we had the first team yeah. in Cincinnati, we had the right to start every season at home.
1: That was, well, and, that was and, the, and assumption. the first team. That was the assumption. And, but the problem was nobody could find any, anything that ever came out of Kennesaw Mountain Landis's mouth or anybody else's mouth who had an authority that said granted that to Cincinnati. It just didn't exist. So we kind of took that mantle upon ourselves. And as it uh, as it worked out, many years they did start first, but they didn't always start first. So, you know, it's – and I kept writing this column saying, wait a minute. You know, I know that, you know politicians are having fun with this, but they were getting the the public all roused up, and, the, and they were yeah. calling the talk shows, and they were writing letters <laughs> to the editor, and they were crazy
0: you know all kinds of heck about this. Well, that's what politicians like, right. to do, and right? And they like
1: to do, they like to stir the pot on on stuff like this.
0: And what better way to get people to vote for you than to be a big fan of the all Reds right. and our alleged right to start the season? So, as a
1: as a Reds fan and somebody who actually cares about history, I thought. Maybe it's time I throw a bucket of water on this brush fire and, you know, see if we can tamp it down a bit, you know, because it was, you know, and Blackwell and the other politicians who were doing this, and there were several of them, they, you know, finally just backed off and said, well, it was just all a joke.
0: And wasn't there a sports writer uh, back in 1935? In my research, I, I yeah. came across a guy by the name of Thomas Swope in the Sporting News. Mm-hmm. What was his involvement with this legend? Well, he had
1: made a bold claim that the, the, the Reds had this right
0: to start first. And he was no authority. I mean, he was, no. quote, unquote, just a sports writer.
1: Well, he was just a sports writer. I mean, he was a very well-known sports writer at the time. And kind of a legendary sports writer, but he just, you know, he he too, seemed to just make this up out of whole cloth. The well, they were the first professional baseball team, so they had to be the first to play, which, you know, when you break it down, makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> it just well, it just and doesn't.
0: because if you look back in history, yeah, um, I don't think you're around in 1888, Howard. I no, mean, you've covered I, I just feel about like it some days, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in eighteen eighty-eight, uh, the Reds actually were scheduled to open in Kansas City. That's right, and that was
1: the that was the one time where they were actually scheduled to open outside of the city of Cincinnati. It's happened several other times, but that was mainly that was due to weather conditions. I remember the one time in nineteen sixty-six when I, I was only thirteen years old, and I was really disappointed that the opening day game got washed out in uh, Cincinnati. Because I was growing up in Dayton, and the principal of our elementary school was a big baseball fan, and he used to play it over the PA system. <laughs> 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 it drove the teachers nuts, but I loved it. And we didn't get to listen to the to the ball game that day because it was washed out.
0: Well, you know, I grew up in uh, Finneytown. Yeah. And ironically, I don't know how my parents arranged this, but they always, always had a dentist appointment. For the boys yeah, right. in our family, every every opening <laughs> yeah. day, I'd walk into the principal's office and say, "Hey, uh, we've got dentist appointments this afternoon. We have to leave about eleven o'clock this morning." <laughs> yeah, but anyway, we digress. The, the
1: old uh, thing about the uh, every year you'd go to the teacher with a note saying, "My grandmother's funeral is today." That's right. <laughs> Grandma died about five or six
0: times. Yeah, there was a barber shop in Clifton. It yeah. had a sign in the window. Uh For forty or fifty years, it said, "You know, Grandpa died again. <laughs> We're down at the ballpark <laughs> yeah um so night eighteen eighty eight I thought was fascinating because when I did my research, if this was true that we had some kind of right, you would think they would have known that nineteen years after eighteen sixty nine and there was not a sh- shred of complaint no. in the newspapers. they just went to Kansas City and they went on the road for like thirteen games, and then they came home and They played. Now, I thought it was kind of funny because what I discovered that year, you know, they've always done something unique on opening day pretty much since 1886 or so. Mm -hmm. That was a year where they all dressed in different colored uniforms. Ah, Yes, that's right. That must have been a sight to see. Yeah, so 1888 is an aberration. They did open on the road. They were actually scheduled to open on the road. Scheduled to open on the road. But what about this idea that they had always been scheduled to be the first- team. Was that true? Did American League teams ever start before the Reds or National League teams? Sure. It happened many times. Uh, but, you know, generally
1: speaking, uh, the Reds would be first just because of the time zone and that kind of thing. But, you know, the uh, yes, the, there, were, there were many times where uh, a team like Detroit or Cleveland or Chicago or somebody else began their ball game sometime before the Reds' first pitch. Now, you know, mostly the Reds or Reds fans in and, and Cincinnati just kind of turned a blind eye to that and didn't make a big deal about it. But then it started growing and growing and growing. And uh, I think, you know, mainly by the time that of uh, well, the big red machine and then into the Marge shot era, that's when it really became... Uh, a serious right. You matter. Right.
0: Yeah, it was kind of interesting because when I did my research, I found like in the 30s, you know, for example, I thought 1937 was really a good example because in that year, before the Reds even played, the, the opening day was on April 20th. And by April 20th, Boston and Philadelphia had already played two games in the National yeah. League on previous days. And Philadelphia and Washington had played the American League opener the previous afternoon, and there again there was no reported protest from anybody right. in Cincinnati. And then, then I came across a situation in 1956 where there were actually two other National League games scheduled an hour before the Reds' opener, plus three games in the American League, and the Reds were actually the latest <laughs> opening yes. day that year. Yeah, right. But then I think you're right in the 60s, 70s. That's early 80s we did kind of start being the true opener of all of baseball
1: yes and that, it was true it was actually true for most of those that period of time so people just thought i guess they assumed that, that it
0: had always been the case and it wasn't always the case right and how about uh the whole idea now it is true that the reds uh, were scheduled to begin the season at home in the 1800s Early nineteen hundreds, uh, did that have anything to do with geography?
1: Yeah, uh, they they say it did. I'm not sure how big a factor that really was, but they said okay, they they could start early because in those days it was about the southernmost city in in uh, organized baseball and major league baseball. Right, and we didn't have a team in Atlanta or Houston, no, or didn't have any of that kind of stuff. It was pretty much cut off at the Ohio River and, and everybody else was north of that.
0: We had like Pittsburgh, northeast. Detroit, Chicago, yeah. Philly, right, New York, Boston.
1: All those places which were, you know, obviously cold weather cities. And the, the by the time uh, April came around in Cincinnati, the, the weather was pretty moderate. The weather was a little better. It was not, you know— We didn't generally expect snowstorms and that sort of thing, which you could in in a place like Boston or Chicago. right? So, you know, they say that weather was a factor in it. I'm not sure that that was the case, but it worked out that way.
0: I know. I read that in Greg Rhodes and John Arardi's book that's entitled Opening Day, which is really a great Great book. book. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. fantastic book. So we talked about Tom Swope. Uh, mm-hmm. He made that claim in 1935. Was there anything going on about uh, in 1935 that actually risked this tradition? In 35? Yeah, 1935 when— Well,
1: uh, I mean, we were on the verge of uh, night games, number one. Yep. You know, that, that's when the yeah. McPhail when McPhail was about to put in lights— at Crosley Field and and turned this into a a day-night game because every game prior to that had been played during the day. And this opened up the possibilities of of night games and even night opening games. But, uh, of course, it didn't come to that for a long, long time.
0: And so you, you mentioned the 1966 rainout. Have there been other occasions where the Reds were scheduled to open at home but actually did not? Well, I think one of the most interesting ones was 1990
1: when there was the lockout. And, and the Nasty Boys. Uh, and the Nasty Boys. And this was, you know, uh, the season didn't get started until about uh, – it was about three weeks later than it was supposed to because they once they had settled the lockout issue – they gave the players about three weeks of of sort of truncated spring training to get ready and get get in shape. And then they said, okay, we'll we'll pick up the uh, schedule at this point. And at that point, the Reds were scheduled to be in Houston. And you know there wasn't even any talk, any consideration of moving that, you know to, to Cincinnati. That was where the the series was to be played. And it was played. And the first game that, that was played in that 1990 season, Barry Larkin uh, had a walk-off triple, won the game. Uh, it was a really exciting I remember watching this game. And it was the first of the wire-to-wire Reds who won the world championship that year. It was how the, the, that wire-to-wire Reds team that everybody talks about and everybody loves started because the Reds were playing in not in in Cincinnati on opening day,
0: but an opening day in Houston. Yeah, didn't they end up? they uh, Maybe you mentioned this. Didn't they start off with like six or seven games on the road and they went six and zero or 7-0 oh, yeah. or That's s- right. some crazy record, and then they came back home and
1: right. They had this amazing record of like uh, thirty and twelve uh, over the first, you know month and a half of the season and it was you know from then it was a, there was just no looking back
0: so back to the whole blackwell story mm-hmm. when you were writing your columns we've got the we've got the mayor out there claiming we had this right to start the season first and I think marge she threatened to move the clocks back or something so that yeah. we would technically be first right. I don't know I think she's going to do uh baseball daylight time or something Yeah. Right. uh what kind of backlash, if any, did you get from Blackwell or other politicians? Did people argue with you, or did they just say, "Oh, Howard, you're right"?
1: Well, they they kind of they tried to ignore me. Number one, you know, cause like I was just this pest who was uh, you know introducing facts into their uh, into their argument, and that uh, sometimes doesn't go over very big with politicians. But uh, you know, they just kept saying it, yeah, and I kept saying no. And uh, you know it was. It got to the point where I could prove my case, but they couldn't prove their case.
0: And you put some of these facts in, in your yeah, columns, I, them, I suppose. Sure. About like eighteen eighty eight, and right. The other. And I asked them.
1: I asked them all to show me. Show me some documents. Show me some conversation that took place between the management of the Reds and. The uh, bigwigs of of Major League Baseball, whether it's commissioner or the president of the National League or or anybody else, where that was said, that that we would always have that right. And so, of course, they they produced some official document, I guess. (laughs) No. They had nothing. (laughs) They had nothing. And, you know, they had nothing because there was nothing to have.
0: Right, we've got you know the uh, Commissioner Landis trying to do something. Yeah, uh, way back when, but even that wasn't no that wasn't formalized I mean, that, or yeah, not formalized. Uh, he was probably a great Reds fan.
1: Uh, yeah, up to the, to the extent that he was a fan of anything, he was a kind of tough guy. You know, he was the one who uh, took care of the uh, Black Sox scandal, and that's how he got you know, into that position of being the first commissioner.
0: Right. So Howard, what were some of your memories about opening day over the years? I know, I don't know, were you as a politics reporter and a writer, were you, were were you a games as a fan or were you you there kind of working for the Enquirer at the time or both? Both really, Randy. I mean, I was,
1: uh, for many years I covered like the, the parade and the hoopla and, and, you know, got into the ballpark and did a lot of stuff and i'd write early i'd write my stuff early
0: and then i'd sit there and i'd go watch the game <laughs> <laughs> do you watch it from the press box or do you uh go out in the? Stands? i would go
1: you know it depend it depends i mean i would sometimes do it from the press box uh but uh, other times like especially after i got a share of a season ticket package i would go and watch it in my seats because it was more fun you know in the in the uh Press box, you know the rule: no cheering in the press box. Oh, is that right? I, I don't know that. Oh, about. yeah. No, that's that's the rule. I mean, I if you did, that,
0: that makes sense. Obviously, it
1: does. It makes sense. Makes perfect sense. If you're covering the game, you can't be sitting there cheering for the home team. Now, I was not a baseball writer, particularly. I was I was a journalist who also happened to be a big baseball fan and a big Reds fan. So I could separate those two uh, personas to where I did, I could I didn't like being in the press box because I couldn't cheer right. And if you did, you know, and this is to this day the case. If you were if you're in there being cheering and, and whooping it up when you know, so uh, you know, Aquino hits a home run or something like that, they're going to ask you to leave. I mean, your 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 credentials will end up being revoked, so you know you can't do it. And I would much rather be sitting in my seat with uh, my favorite beverage and a bag of peanuts and my scorecard, which I always have a scorecard on my on my lap.
0: And to me, that's just a much better way to watch a ball game. I I totally agree with you. Do you have any particular? Opening days that kind of stand out in your mind as well, ones either treasure or you just remember for their historical importance.
1: Um, there were some that were just amazing. I mean, the, and one that was absolutely tragic—the one where uh, umpire John McSherry passed away right at the, in the beginning of the ball game. And you were down in your seats for this, yeah? Or? Okay. Yeah, I was in my seats that day, and uh, he, we were in the second batter of the uh, expos. It was in the first inning, and I think it was Rondell White who was at the plate, and there was like one strike or something, and he called a ball, and I could see him stumble back backwards, and then suddenly just slam down under the ground, and I I swear. I looked at, at him. I was kind of far away, but I could tell, as that man's dead. And they went out to try to revive him, and nothing, nothing would happen. And the whole place was just absolutely stunned. Nobody knew what to
0: say. Right. I remember walking out that day, and, yeah. and it was just the weirdest strange, feeling. Very strange. And you felt horrible. And that turned out to be newsworthy, and I mean, it was tragic. Yeah. But then we had Marge. Oh, yeah. She threw a little bit of a fit, didn't she?
1: Yeah. I mean, at the Enquirer, we had uh, Rick Green, who later, who, who now is an editor at uh, Louisville, it was a reporter back then, and we had him spending the day that day with uh, Marge. And so he was, like, with her all the time. And he got all the stories, you know, about her complaining about, you know, how can he ruin my opening day like this, uh, about her sending. There were, she had gotten flowers from somebody for opening day. And she said, well, send these down to the umpires. So she was recycling the, the flowers that somebody had given her. But she just was, she she thought it was all about her. You know, how could they ruin my Which is a shame because day. I always, I, I think I of Marge so right. highly and Yeah,
0: how much she meant for opening day. Right. But she turns into this Jekyll and Hyde character. Yes. You know, one minute you love yeah. her. right. And then she does something crazy like, she wanted to continue, wasn't one of her quotes like, why can't we just do it with three umpires? With three umpires, right. Exactly. I mean, just no recognition of what it. just And she happened.
1: had, you're right, you're exactly right. She had this Jekyll and Hyde type personality I remember going down to her one day at a ballpark when some friends of mine their child was very very ill and she was going to the Mayo Clinic all the time for treatment and I was telling Marge about this and she was sitting there and looking at me you know she was smoking her cigarette and <laughs> uh, and, and I it, tears started falling down her face as I was telling her about this little girl, I think it was six or seven at the time. and yeah. She said, honey, you stay here. Hey, stay here for a minute. And she called a couple of her people and had them come down to the seat, told them to go up to her office, get all the hats and and
0: Any uh, kind of souvenirs. souvenirs.
1: Particularly hats because this little girl had cancer and she had lost her hair. And bring them down to me. And and she did, and she said, "Here, you you take this to that little girl. So I'll be praying for him." Yeah. Now she didn't have to do that.
0: No, she did and and she was such a kind woman on, right. on so many occasions. On so many occasions. Okay, but so we've talked about McSherry, and that's a memorable yeah. date right. for all the wrong reasons, and yeah. we kind of veered off in the marge. Are there other uh, oh. openings days that kind of just stick out in your mind?
1: Well, there was one, the walk-off uh, home run. I'm trying to remember which year it was. It was in the late—I uh, think it was around 2007, 2008, when uh, Joe Randa, who was the new uh, third baseman— the most Reds fans didn't know a whole lot about him, but he hit a big walk-off home run to win that uh, opening day game, and the place just went nuts. And I felt so good for the guy because it introduced him to the fans. And I said, "Man, this guy might be pretty good." He right. did, of course, he didn't last very long he, with the Reds, but he didn't last very long. No, but he he had one big day.
0: He did have a big day. Yeah. Any others that just stick out in your mind for one reason or another?
1: <laughs> oh. They were, I mean, they're all fun. They're all, you know, a, a lot of the debuts of of some players that you know are household names now. I can remember uh, Barry Larkin's first day, first opening day because I had done a, a feature about his parents out in Silverton, who were great great folks.
0: Yeah, it's a great family. great family.
1: And, uh, I wanted to pay attention to what he was doing and, uh, it was, you know, and he had a good game that day, but you, you know, I, I love seeing those kinds of games where, you know, you'd have where these legends were born and I can usually pick them out because I've watched them, you know, develop as minor leaguers and, uh, you know, or seen them in play in high school even.
0: And that's that happens ever, frequently. Right. And we had the year with uh, Ken Griffey Jr. Oh, yeah. Obviously, right. that was an unbelievable opening day just because there was so much anticipation over, you know, he yeah. was a player of the century right. after just playing out in Seattle for eight or nine years. Yeah. And here we've got the player of Cincinnati from Cincinnati coming back. That was a crazy opening day. And yeah. Unfortunately, it was, it was a, rained out after four and a half innings, I think. Yeah,
1: it was. It was nasty. It was there were some, there were some years I can remember where the it was, it would rain and then it would snow, and then it would the sun would come out and then it would rain some more and then it was sm- snow. I can remember one opening day game I think it was 1985 where they had to stop the game three times to push snow off of
0: the field. Right, that <laughs> was anyway. one of my wife's. Uh, first opening days, and yeah. we are sitting out in right field in the green seats, Yeah. and it's literally snowing on us. Right, yeah. <laughs> and uh, she says, why are they playing this game in the beginning of April, <laughs> and not like in May? Yeah. And I said, well, you know, they used to do that back in the 1800s. You know, the baseball season would start in May right. when they played far fewer games, but now we have 162 games. We've got to you better we start gotta get a pretty yeah. good start, and we know this year we're going to start now on. starting
1: March 26th.
0: yeah. So, Howard, this is great. I really appreciate you being here today. I guess we've established that Ken Blackwell told a little fib back in the (laughs) 1980s that we do have. We can forgive him after all these years. We we? can forgive him. We weren't always the first team to start. But what we do know is true is that for many years, well, all of the years except for the one in 1888, years of the reds existence cincinnati has been accorded the privilege of being scheduled to host what is now known as opening day and that term was used offhandedly by the enquire back in 1895 to signify the launch of the professional baseball season but we're not necessarily uh the first team to actually play baseball in any given year uh, but this privilege that we do have is something that's enjoyed by no other city in any professional or amateur sport that we know of. Nothing else like it in baseball. No. no.
1: In any place. Uh, and that tells you something about the city and about its relationship to the Reds and to the game of baseball. Nobody
0: else does this. No, it, it's it's truly our Mardi Gras. or Yeah. Indy Five Hundred. It's the Rose Bowl Parade. I mean, it's all of those things rolled into one. I know way back when the Findlay Market Parade was basically just a well organized pub crawl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, but since the seventies, it's really grown, evolved, and it's a day I'm really going to look forward to. I'm sure you are. March twenty sixth. It's going to be a good year. I think. So we covered the probably the biggest myth about Opening Day in Cincinnati, but it doesn't take away from our holiday whatsoever. We have it here every year to start our baseball season. And I thank Howard Wilkinson for being with us today. It's a great privilege to hear Howard talk about anything, but especially Red's history. I hope you enjoyed this third episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day, and we'll tune in to more of our episodes over the coming weeks. This is Randy Freaking signing off and in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman. So long, everybody.